We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And away we go, episode 16 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Friday, March 12th, 2021. A happy Friday, a festive Friday to you uh, and yours. Looks like we could all be eligible for our coronavirus vaccines by May 1st. Those of us who have yet to be vaccinated, uh, this is only going for adults, at least for the time being. That's what Biden said last night. And this would be very good if that's what happens. I, I know there are those who do not want the vaccine for whatever reason, uh, more power to you. Knock yourself out. I'm getting my vaccine when I can. I'm having them jam that needle wherever they got to jam it to get the job done. But anyway, good news there. Uh, hope you enjoyed the weather here in the D.C. area on Thursday. That was spectacular. And I hope that you are prepared for what we're going to talk about here on this installment of the podcast because the clock is ticking. The clock be ticking toward NFL free agency, legal tampering period beginning on Monday. That's when the chaos truly begins. I have for you the latest regarding the Washington football team, including another prominent free agent to be linebacker. Now off the market, you know, all this talk about Washington wanting to upgrade at linebacker. Well, now uh, the top two free agent linebackers to be off the market. That's not good. Uh, I want to talk about that and the larger reality that this highlights. Today, Friday, is the pro day for Trey Lance. Guess who's going to be there? Our team, the Washington football team, with major representation, two top lieutenants of Godfather Ron Rivera, of Don Ron, going to be watching Trey Lance. I like Trey Lance. I think Washington should be very open to drafting Trey Lance. 
We'll get into that. Speaking of the NFL draft, special guest for you on this Friday podcast, Matt Manocharian, the vice president of football and research for Sports Info Solutions, the editor of an outstanding handbook that's out, the Sports Info Solutions Football Rookie Handbook. Matt is outstanding because he combines the two worlds of analytics and scouting. In fact, he's worked as a scout in the NFL. This is a guy who knows his stuff big time. We're going to go in-depth on the quarterbacks in the 2021 draft, including those possibly slash potentially available to Washington with that number 19 overall pick. You know, Trey Lance, Justin Fields, Mac Jones, Kyle Trask, and Matt and I will talk a lot more about the draft and about like team philosophies regarding the draft. I think you're going to enjoy our conversation. We have college hoops, of course, to discuss. March Madness, right? Big wins for Maryland, Georgetown, and Virginia in their conference tournaments on Thursday, though a loss for Virginia Tech late on Thursday night. Another win for the Capitals on Thursday night. We'll get into that, and we'll do some Nationals and Orioles talk later in the podcast. Uh, some items of business to address before we truly get going here. Number one, thank you to Scott Allen of the Washington Post for writing about me. A very nice article that came out on Thursday about my venturing into the world of podcasting with this podcast, the Al Galdi podcast, and also the Nats Chat podcast that I'm doing with Mark Zuckerman. I encourage you to check out the article. I tweeted it out on Thursday. You can go to my Twitter page. Even if you're not a regular Twitter user, you can always look at everything I've tweeted, all my uh, stupid things that I'm putting out there, uh, twitter.com slash Al Galdi. Uh, Scott did a great job with the piece. Uh, I have no complaints. You know, I was kind of hoping that he would misquote me just so I could come out on this podcast and do the thing that so many people in sports have done over the years. You know, I was misquoted. I never said that, you know. Gosh darn media, always out to get me. You know, that kind of a thing. But no, uh, I can't say that. Scott nailed it. Uh, did a really nice job. So thank you, Scott. And honestly, thank you to you because without your support for this podcast and the success of it so far, that article never gets written. So once again, I got to thank you, people. And, you know, Scott had the nugget early in the piece of how I do what I do, you know, taping this podcast very early in the morning, going down to my makeshift studio in my basement. And that's where I'm at here right now. And I'm staring at my makeshift soundproofing, a wall of pillows in front of me, a massive decades old white blanket to my left. That is the high quality soundproofing that I've got going for you here in order to pump out this podcast. Every weekday morning. So Scott, I know Scott got a kick out of that when I told him about that in our phone conversation, uh, which was actually a week ago today. Anyway, another item of business to get into is the intro song. The topic that refuses to go away. It remains amazing to me how much feedback I continue to get on the intro song. And I've made mention of this, but I want to highlight it here for just a moment because initially a lot of you were like, boy, that intro song sucks on your podcast, Goldie. You got to change it. And there were just a few people were like, yeah, you know, I kind of like it. And something very interesting has happened over, I'd say, like the last two weeks or so. The tide has turned. And sure enough, I'm getting all kinds of feedback now that you guys like the intro song <laughs> or at the very least, like it's growing on you. Like, like it's almost like, yeah, I know it's not good, but for whatever reason, it's kind of growing on me. Just to give you a sample of some of what I've gotten here recently, all right? You can always email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Rashad. Music has grown on me too. Email from Larry Harris. Hi, Al. I love the new podcast and the theme song. Email from Rick. This maybe captures it the best. Al, keep the intro song. It's horrible, but I like it. 
Email from Richard. Hey, Al. Have listened to all 11 podcasts and am definitely hooked. Since the beginning, I've been fine with the intro music and the inter-segment rush. Yes, my obscenely expensive separator that we use between segments on this podcast. As a matter of fact, continues Richard, both of these pieces have grown on me, and I believe you should definitely hang on to them. Email from Andrew. Al, so glad you're back with the podcast and the quality of them, even better than your 980 show. I appreciate the fact that you go deep on all DMV sports. Additionally, I, as a techno-slash-progressive househead, love the intro music, gets a 10 from me, keep it. I can keep going with these people. Email from Peter. I will be disappointed if you change the intro. Thanks for an excellent job, Peter. Born and raised in Puerto Rico, now from Springfield, Virginia. There you go, Peter. Viva los Boricuas, Peter. And then how about this tweet from Jim Landry? You can always tweet me, at Al Galdi. Not sure if Jim is related to Tom, but we'll find that out maybe at a later time. But Jim Landry tweets me, (laughs) starting an official campaign to hashtag keep the intro, who is with me? So the momentum is a thing, people. It's flying right now. It's one of the great turnarounds we've ever seen. You know, like the Nationals going from 19 and 31 to a World Series title. Like the Maryland Terrapins 20 years ago going from losing at home to Florida State on Valentine's night to making the Final Four. Like the Washington football team being dead and buried by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers during the homecoming game in 2015 and then rallying for the greatest come from behind win in franchise history. Though you like that victory. You like that? You like that? Yes. Thank you, Kirk. You see, that's what the intro song is saying right now. You like that? You guys had me gone. You guys had me with no shot at ever staying. And now we are surging to the moon in terms of the groundswell of support that has emerged over the last few weeks. Well, continue to let me know what you think at Al Galdi on Twitter, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. And now on to sports. Ah, yes, there it is. The obscenely expensive separator for the Al Galdi podcast. So, NFL free agency is a coming. Legal tampering period begins on Monday. New league year begins on Wednesday. But of course, it's the lead up to free agency that many times can be as exciting as free agency because you have teams getting their ducks in rows and figuring out, okay, from salary cap standpoints here, what do we need to be doing? Who do we need to be cutting? Who do we need to be resigning? Etc. So there, of course, has been a ton of news over the last few days, and we got plenty of it to unpack here uh, on this Friday. But maybe the most significant thing that came out on Thursday regarding the Washington football team had to do with a player not on the Washington football team and with a team that is not the Washington football team. The Buffalo Bills on Thursday announced that they have agreed on a four-year contract extension with linebacker Matt Milano, who was set to be maybe the single best linebacker available in free agency. The deal reportedly is for $44 million, including $24 million guaranteed. We thought that Washington and, you know, every other team is going to have a crack at Milano when the Bills did not franchise tag Milano by the deadline to do so this past Tuesday. But Milano now has been re-signed. And this is a blow. There's no other way to put this. This is not good news regarding Washington trying to upgrade at the linebacker spot. Matt Milano's going into his age 27 season. He's a really good story. Fifth round pick by the Bills in the 2017 draft at a Boston college. And the area in which Milano has excelled the most is an area where the Washington football team has needed to upgrade for years. And that is in coverage. A linebacker who excels in coverage. Matt Milano 
over his first four seasons for Pro Football Focus has allowed a passer rating of just 83.9 in coverage. That's really good. 20 points lower than the average passer rating allowed by linebackers in coverage. Now, look, Milano did miss a good chunk of time in 2020 due to injury. Played in just 10 regular season games due to a hamstring injury and a pectoral injury. He did not have a great 2020. That is true. But Milano had been durable over his first three seasons, during which he played in 44 of a possible 48 regular season games. He is young. He is a, you know, a hard worker, a good story. He's a guy who, of course, comes from the Bills, right? General manager Brandon Bean, head coach Sean McDermott, two guys who are with the Carolina Panthers. So Milano very clearly fits that, you know, Panthers, Ron Rivera-like culture that old Don Ron is trying to set up here in Washington. And Milano's now off the market. Now, you combine this with news that came out a few days earlier. It was on Tuesday that we had the news that another prominent free agent to be linebacker, Levante David, had agreed to re-sign with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. We thought as Washington fans, we were out of the woods with David in terms of he was not franchise tagged by the Bucks by the deadline to do so on Tuesday. But then it came out later on Tuesday, well, there's a reason the Bucks didn't tag David. The uh, Bucks tagged the receiver, Chris Godwin. But the reason you don't tag David is we got a deal in place with the guy to bring him back. So Levante David is coming back to the Bucks, reportedly via a two-year $25 million contract with $20 million guaranteed. And there was a lot to like about Levante David. Now, he's is a bit older, going into his age 31 season, but he has been very durable, okay? Uh, over his nine-year career, he's played in 137 of a possible 144 regular season games. He has been a staple for the Bucks defensively for years. He's been very good in coverage for years. And specific to this past season, 2020, you know, Bucks were really good defensively, right? With Todd Bowles as the coordinator, Tampa Bay finished number five in total defense for football outsiders. DVOA metric, it was Levante David who played on the most defensive snaps for the Bucks in 2020, 99.34%. So on a top five Bucks defense in 2020, nobody played more on that defense than Levante David. We thought Washington might have a shot at him. He ends up being re-signed. So there's kind of two big things here with this. Uh, the first one is the obvious one we've already hit on, which is Washington is needy at linebacker. I think Washington needs more than one linebacker to upgrade at linebacker. To, to me, the only true starting caliber backer you have on Washington is Cole Holcomb. Beyond that, you know, people like John Bostic and Kevin Pierre-Lewis, and Kevin Pierre-Lewis is going to be an unrestricted free agent. Bostic's under contract. But they are guys who fit your culture. That is true. Ron Rivera, Jack Del Rio do like those guys. But they're not starting caliber linebackers. Not to me, not on a really good defense. Have them back as depth guys for sure. Like as backups, that's good. But you need two more starting caliber linebackers on this team. So it's not like there's just one magic bullet fix, magic bullet upgrade for Washington's linebacker core. You really need two guys this offseason, either via free agency or the draft. And it's not that Milano and David were like your only hopes to upgrade at linebacker, but they may well have been your two best hopes. Like you really could argue these were the two best free agent to be linebackers and they're now off the market. But the other takeaway with both Matt Milano and Levante David having been re-signed before free agency would be this. And, and I think it's something to always remember when it comes to NFL free agency. And, you know, this thing of, well, wow, we're going to upgrade and we're going to get this guy and we're going to get that guy. And we're going to be so much better at the end of this process. Teams don't let players, those teams truly want to keep, get to free agency. And so you always have to remember, guys who make it to free agency are inevitably flawed. 
And there are inevitably reasons those guys have made it to free agency. If you as a team really value a guy and really want to keep a guy, you re-sign the guy before he ever makes it to free agency. Now, of course, there are exceptions to that. And it's not to say that every free agent who's out there is someone who his previous team had no interest in keeping or anything like that, right? There are things that come up that complicate circumstances. And sometimes guys just don't want to stay with their current teams, even though those teams really want those guys to stay. So yeah, there are always exceptions to something like this. But by and large, by and large, guys make it to free agency because their initial teams didn't truly want to keep them, didn't do enough to try to keep them, didn't extend them, didn't franchise tag them, whatever the case may be. And if you just think about our team, the Washington football team over the last decade or so, and just think about who have been like the better players on Washington, right? Not not that there have been a ton of them, all right? Although it's getting better here the last few years. But, you know, you think about like the best guys from the last decade, right? Like Trent Williams, Ryan Kerrigan, Jordan Reed, those kind of people. Those guys never made it to free agency or those guys did not leave Washington because of free agency. Washington extended Trent Williams before he ever got to free agency. Washington extended Ryan Kerrigan before he ever got to free agency. Washington extended Jordan Reed before he ever got to free agency. Washington has extended actually a good number of guys over the last decade or so. You know, Chris Thompson got a contract extension. Quinton Dunbar got a contract extension. DeShazer Everett got a contract extension. All kinds of people at various points have gotten extended. Why? Because Washington wanted to keep those guys. And conversely, the trend with Washington has been when its prominent players have made it to free agency, those guys have gone bye-bye. You know, it's been very rare. I mean, you can track this. I have. Last decade or so, the key slash significant Washington football team players who actually go into free agency almost always end up leaving in free agency. Deshaun Jackson, Pierre Garçon, Chris Baker, Bashad Breland, Preston Smith, Jamison Crowder, Trent Murphy, Ryan Grant, Jay Gruden's favorite. You know, I'm not talking about guys who were cut like Josh Norman. I'm talking about guys who had expiring contracts, went into unrestricted free agency. Those guys almost always end up not being re-signed by Washington. And that's the way this tends to go. If you really want to keep someone, you extend them, you re-sign them before the guy ever gets to free agency. And if, you know, you maybe like the guy, but don't love the guy, or you maybe have no interest in keeping the guy, you let him get to free agency. And so the pool of people that Washington and everyone else is going to be dealing with next week, it's a pool of people, remember, coming from teams that didn't do all they could to keep those players. By and large. Again, there are exceptions. I recognize that. But that's what you have to remember. So it's like when it comes to linebacker, right? No more Matt Milano, no more Levante David. Why? Those guys are good. Those guys were retained before they ever got to free agency this offseason. So what does that leave you with? Well, that does leave you with options at linebacker. It's not like the field is completely barren, but it leaves you with a field of people who you say, well, uh, there's this guy, but he's got this flaw and there's that guy and he's got that flaw. And that's what you're dealing with in free agency. That's why you always have to be careful with free agency. What you end up doing is you end up paying retail for guys who are older, guys who already have NFL mileage on their bodies and guys, again, whose initial teams didn't do all they could to keep those guys and maybe didn't want to keep those guys. And of course you have to ask the question, well, why? 
didn't those teams want to keep those guys? More on the Washington football team in moments, but first, I have something historic. All right. I am pleased to say that the Al Galdi podcast has its first sponsor and it is a powerhouse. DraftKings is on board with the Al Galdi podcast and what a time of year for DraftKings to be on board. Conference tournaments well underway, bubble teams making final pushes for bids while the top seeds are preparing for what they hope are long runs. DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top rated sportsbook app, is putting new customers in the center of the action. And how about this? You bet $4 on an underdog, you win $256 if the underdog wins. It's that simple. That's bet $4 on an underdog in select college basketball games. And if the underdog wins, you collect $256. The bank is open. Pick one of many select college basketball underdogs for your shot at winning again $256. And all it takes is a $4 bet. There's no better way to put your college basketball knowledge to the test than to put your money where your mouth is with DraftKings Sportsbook. And don't worry if college basketball isn't for you. DraftKings Sportsbook offers great odds and promotions on golf, hockey, and so much more. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable. You can deposit and withdraw your funds at your convenience. So here's what you do. Download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use this promo code, GALDI. When you sign up to turn $4 into $256 if the underdog of your choosing pulls off the upset. That's code GALDI to turn $4 into $256 for a limited time only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older, Virginia only, new customers only, restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash Sportsbook for details. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, call the Virginia Problem Gambling Helpline at 888-532-3500. So we on Thursday's podcast talked about the report from ESPN Washington football team insider John Kime that Washington will in fact be tendering Cam Sims as a restricted free agent. No surprise there, but it obviously was news worth getting into. Washington already had re-signed one of its restricted free agents to be in Taylor Heineke, signed him to that two-year extension about a month ago. Uh, Also had the news uh, this week, of course, of Washington tendering its exclusive rights free agent to be in Kyle Allen. There are, though, two other restricted free agents to be on Washington, and we have news on both that came out on Thursday. And the news came from Ben Standing, Washington football team insider for the Athletic DC. Ben reporting that Washington will not be tendering both receiver Robert Foster and corner Danny Johnson. Each guy was supposed to be a restricted free agent, but when you don't tender a restricted free agent to be a contract, that restricted free agent to be becomes an unrestricted free agent. Now, Ben did say with each guy that Washington does have interest in re-signing him. So it's not like you're necessarily going to be saying bye-bye to both players, but it is worth noting, Washington not thinking enough of either guy to tender him a contract as a restricted free agent. Now, neither player is a major player, that's for sure. But Robert Foster is someone who was on Washington for a good chunk of this past season. Now, he only ended up having two catches for 37 yards on six targets over four games. In fact, it was Robert Foster who caught the last double-digit yardage pass thrown by Dwayne Haskins as a Washington quarterback. Robert Foster, and that loss to the Carolina Panthers at FedEx Field in Week 16, the recipient of a third-and-seven, 28-yard completion from the arm of Dwayne Haskins in the fourth quarter. Foster actually did a lot of the work on that play, made the defensive back Miles Hartsfield miss on an attempted tackle, did a good job of generating yak, 
down the left sideline. But yes, uh, that's the answer to the trivia question. Who was the pass catcher on Wayne Wayne's final completion for at least 10 yards for Washington? The answer is Robert Foster. But Foster was inactive for five of Washington's final nine regular season games. And then for the playoff loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in the wild card round, was active but did not play on any of Washington's offensive snaps. Washington signed Foster off the Green Bay Packers practice squad last October. This is a guy who came in the NFL. It's interesting. We just talked about Cam Sims. Foster, like Sims, came into the NFL as an undrafted free agent out of Alabama. Foster initially was with the Buffalo Bills uh, when he joined the NFL in May 2018. Danny Johnson, to me, is interesting. Uh, Danny Johnson going into his age 26 season. You may remember this. In 2018, Danny Johnson, as an undrafted rookie at a Southern University, was one of the major standouts during training camp and the preseason, right? Every summer, at least those summers in which we have true training camps and preseasons, we have our heroes, right? Whether you're talking about Colt Brennan or Chase Daniel or Marcus Mason or Marco Mitchell or whoever else. And Danny Johnson was that guy in 2018. Major standout in August of that year. He makes the team as an undrafted rookie at a Southern in 18, but he ultimately ends up playing on just 6.49% of Washington's defensive snaps that season. Actually ended the season on injured reserve due to finger and knee injuries. 2019, Johnson played in just two games. Injury ravaged season for him. He was on the physically unable to perform list from July to December due to a knee injury. He gets activated off that list, makes his season debut in a loss to the Philadelphia Eagles at FedEx Field in week 15 and plays well. 10 tackles, including nine solo tackles. But then in the next game, he suffers a season-ending broken hand. And then this past season for Danny Johnson, he does not play on a single defensive snap the entire year. Uh, He was Washington's primary kickoff return man. You know, we saw him a bunch, but he did not play at all on defense. Uh, Johnson actually was not bad on kickoff returns. He was the primary kickoff return man for Washington for a second time in three seasons. He actually ended up ranking 13th in the NFL among players with at least 15 kickoff returns in yards per kickoff return at 22. So, you know, it's not shocking that Washington is not tendering both Foster and Johnson, but it is worth noting. When it comes to the unrestricted free agents for Washington that we're going to be talking about next week, I think it's actually pretty easy to predict who's back and who isn't. So obviously Washington has tagged Brandon Sheriff, but you go through the rest of the major unrestricted free agents to be. Ronald Darby, I think Washington wants him back, and I think Washington will have him back. Ryan Kerrigan, gone. Kevin Pierre-Lewis, I think he gets re-signed. Ryan Anderson, gone. Fabian Moreau, gone. Reuben Foster, gone. Jeremy Sprinkle, gone. Dustin Hopkins, I think he's re-signed. Ron Rivera pretty clearly likes Hopkins and obviously stuck with Hopkins even through some of the struggles in 2020. And Nick Sundberg, uh, I think he gets re-signed. He's been a staple at long snapper for years. So I think the toughest of the bunch in terms of the unrestricted is going to be Darby, just because it's not a great market for corners and Darby is coming off a really good season. But he did well in this system last year. Ron and Jack really liked Darby. And I would think with Darby, you know, especially because he had issues in 2019, he had a hard time staying healthy 2017 through 2019. I don't know that he's going to get overwhelmed by an offer by somebody else. And so if all things are equal or close enough to equal, Darby's from this area. I think him resigning, even though, yes, he is going into unrestricted free agency, and that always lessens the likelihood of the player being resigned. I think it's very plausible that Washington gets the Darby deal done. And then with the other unrestricted who Washington wants back, guys like Kevin Pierre-Lewis and Dustin Hopkins and Nick Sunberg, I mean, those should be relatively easy deals to do.
Our special guest, Matt Manocherian, Vice President of Football and Research for Sports Info Solutions on the 2021 NFL Draft coming up in just a few minutes here. Good day, though, to have Matt on the show because today is a big day regarding a certain quarterback set to be available in the 2021 NFL Draft, perhaps a quarterback who could fall to number 19 overall and our Washington football team. Friday is the day for the pro day for North Dakota State quarterback, Trey Lance. And very interestingly, on Thursday evening, NFL insider Albert Breer of the MMQB reported that Washington football team general manager Martin Mayhew and offensive coordinator Scott Turner will be attending Trey Lance's pro day. And it's significant not just that Washington is attending Trey Lance's pro day, because, I mean, really, truly, you should be attending the pro days for all of the top quarterbacks and, you know, most of the non-top quarterbacks too, right? You're a quarterback needy team. But NFL teams this offseason, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, are limited to a maximum of three representatives each at any given pro day. So who you send matters. And I think it is telling, and I think it's smart, that Washington is sending two of its upper guys in terms of the front office slash coaching staff. Your GM, Martin Mayhew, is going there. Like, not just someone in your scouting department, but your GM is going there. And your offensive coordinator, Scott Turner, is going there. You know, you're not sending some slappy on the coaching staff. You're not even just sending, you know, say your quarterback's coach, Ken Zampese. You're sending the OC. You're sending Scott Turner to get an up-close and personal look at Trey Lance. Now, I got to tell you something. I am very intrigued by Trey Lance. And if you told me right now on March 12th that Washington is going to be taking Trey Lance with the number 19 overall pick on April 29th, I would not be angry. And I would actually be excited. I think there's a lot to like with Trey Lance. There's a lot of uncertainty. That is true. And there certainly is a risk in taking this guy. But I think there's a lot to look at and say, you know what? I think this guy can play at the next level. He's listed as being 6'4", 226 pounds. He has spectacular athleticism. You know, we saw in that playoff loss to Tampa Bay, the value of a quarterback who can run, the value of a quarterback who's athletic. Like whatever you want to say about Taylor Heineke and what he may or may not be, what he did on that touchdown run, the extent to which he was able to threaten a high-level Buccaneers defense with his legs cannot be overstated. It was a major factor in that game. Trey Lance can do that in addition to being a very good thrower of the football. Now, he's not a polished product. And the biggest thing of all with Trey Lance would be the guy played for North Dakota State and FCS school for essentially just one season. Like, there's not a lot of a body of work, and that body of work has come against FCS-level competition. Lance in 2018 used a redshirt year. Lance in 2020 played in just one game. And by the way, that was not a particularly impressive game. Uh, it was the only game that North Dakota State played in the fall of 2020 until the season got restarted last month. Lance was very mixed in this game. It was a 39-28 win over Central Arkansas. Lance went just 15-30 for just 149 yards, two touchdowns, and an interception. And he took two sacks. But he also had 15 carries for 143 yards and two touchdowns. And it was in 2019, the one true season for Trey Lance, that he killed it. He was sensational. That was his redshirt freshman season. He started all 16 games for North Dakota. He started all 16 games for a North Dakota State team that won the FCS National Championship and in fact became the first 16 and 0 team in college football since 1894. Uh, Lance won the Walter Payton Award as the top offensive player in the FCS, won the Jerry Rice Award as the top freshman player in the FCS. 28 touchdown passes versus no interceptions, 9.7 yards per pass attempt, 
1,100 rushing yards, 14 rushing touchdowns, an average of six and a half yards per carry. And before you say, well, okay, who cares about all those numbers, Goldie? You came against FCS defenses. That is true, but you also have to say this. It came while playing in an FCS offense, i.e. playing with FCS teammates. Like, if you want to downgrade Trey Lance for the competition against which he did what he did, that's fine. But also recognize he did what he did with FCS-level teammates, i.e. FCS offensive linemen, FCS receivers, FCS tight ends, FCS running backs. So lesser competition he was facing, but lesser teammates, in theory, he was playing with. So like that needs to be mentioned. People never mention that when they talk about FCS guys. They're like, well, they just beat up on a bunch of bad FCS defenses. Okay, but what about who the guy was playing with? So I think Trey Lance, there's a lot to like. Speed, athleticism, arm strength, accuracy. There are mechanical concerns, yes. And you certainly have to say, man, you just haven't gotten a lot of football out of this guy. So it is a very small body of work. I will totally concede that. And that's one of the things that got Washington in trouble with Dwayne Haskins. Small sample size, small body of work. He obviously wasn't ready, both from a performance standpoint and from a maturity standpoint, for the NFL level. But you can't help how you feel. And I will tell you, I look at Trey Lance and I'm intrigued. And I know you can't just judge a guy off his YouTube highlights. That is a very dangerous thing to do. But go ahead and YouTube up some Trey Lance highlights and tell me you don't get just a little excited when you watch this guy do what he's done. There is this nugget too on Trey Lance. NFL insider Peter King of NBC Sports in his Football Morning in America column that was published on February 28th had the following on Lance. Quote, one NFL coach whose team is in the market for a quarterback this offseason told me the other day, Lance scares him. He's a guy we all needed to see more of for a lot of reasons, this coach said. I won't be surprised if Lance is passed by Mac Jones in the first round come April, end quote. And if you told me who are the two most likely of the top five quarterbacks who fall to 19, right? And it may be that none of these guys fall to number 19 and the Washington football team, but no chance Trevor Lawrence, no chance Zach Wilson, I still think it's probably unlikely Justin Fields, although there's a lot of variance with where the mocks have him going. But the two guys most likely to fall to 19, if any of these top five guys fall to 19, are Trey Lance and Mac Jones. And it's a very interesting compare and contrast with those two because with Trey Lance, you have this wide range of what he could end up being. You know, With Mac Jones, it's a much smaller range. Mac Jones is that classic high floor, low ceiling type quarterback prospect. We saw him play at Alabama. We know what Mac Jones is. You know, Mac Jones is not someone who's running all over the place. Mac Jones is a pocket passer, ran the offense at Alabama in a very efficient and effective fashion. But you kind of know what you're getting in Mac Jones. And the belief is that he kind of is what he is. I mean, you know, you can always get better, but his room for improvement may not be that much. Trey Lance, it feels like he could end up being terrible and a total flop, and he could end up being spectacular. And I know Carson Wentz has become a punchline, but Carson Wentz and his success 2017, 2018, 2019 showed us that a high-level FCS quarterback can do quite well at the NFL level. Carson Wentz, of course, went to North Dakota State. I am not dismissive at all of Trey Lance. This has kind of been my ongoing theme with Washington's search for a franchise quarterback. You have to be open to anything, all right? It doesn't mean you do anything. But you've got to be open to all kinds of possibilities. I don't get people who just dismiss Kyle Allen and Taylor Heineke, and I would be open to Trey Lance. And if Martin Mayhew and Scott Turner like what they see on Friday, I'm not going to be one of these people who's like, no way am I taking Trey Lance at 19. Yeah, 
If you like what you see and you feel like he can be the guy, absolutely take him in the first round. All right, very pleased right now to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast, a special guest, Matt Manocharian, the vice president of football and research for Sports Info Solutions, which is an operation near and dear to my heart. It's at the forefront, the vanguard of the analytics movement in sports. And Matt's the editor of an outstanding book that's out, the Sports Info Solutions Football Rookie Handbook, a must read to get ready for the 2021 NFL Draft. Matt, it's great to talk to you again, man. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on. Let's talk some football. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I find your background so interesting because you've worked as a scout in the NFL, worked for the New Orleans Saints, worked for the Cleveland Browns. So, you know, it's not like you're some analytics guy who only knows numbers, right? You really do combine the two worlds of new school data and old school scouting. And it always kind of cracks me up when people try to make this like an either or proposition. I mean, the truth is, as you well know, you can and should do both. I'm just curious, what has it been like for you being a prominent part of both worlds? Yeah, you know, like it, it, it drives me crazy when people want to draw a distinction. It's like, do you like driving fast or do you like going 200 miles an hour? Like you can make it out like those are different things, but they're not. Uh, one, one thing is just using measurements, whereas one is a little bit more of the eye test. And yeah, my background as a scout. I'm a, I consider myself a football guy. Um, I've never even really cared for statistics very much growing up because football statistics were really bad. Things like yards and uh, touchdowns and incompletions. You don't have a lot to work with when when the 22 guys are moving on the field. Most people don't even have stats assigned to them. So all we're trying to do is create a more systematic approach. You know, as a scout, I love grinding the film, but there's no scout that can watch every game of every player. And that's one thing that the numbers can do. Now, you can't measure everything that maybe uh, if you had an individual human who could watch all the games, maybe you can't get as much of the detail and intricacy, but that's why we try to make better statistics than than just yards and touchdowns and things like that. So yeah, I'm with you. It's gotta be, it's gotta be football. It's gotta be scouting and analytics together. It can't be one. It can't be a battle between both. Baseball tried that like 20 years ago and they turned right around and yeah, there's a lot of analytical principles, but scouting has kind of been doubled down on as something that's useful. Um, scouting data, what scouts gather is data, um, to a good analyst. So, so all of these things are, are really at the core of my belief system. So yeah, it drives me nuts when people say, oh, oh you're just a numbers guy. In putting together the Sports Info Solutions Rookie Handbook, to what extent was gathering information and forming opinions difficult, you know, given the pandemic, the unusual college football season, no scouting combine, et cetera? Yeah, with less games, uh, there's less information. So I think probably uh, in, an, in a normal year, we overstate the amount of information that we have. I think one of the key fallacies that pretty much every scout and scouting department falls prey to is thinking that you know more than you do. Uh, there's just so much uncertainty when it comes to the draft. Uh, there are things that you, you can't possibly know about certain players that um, uh, are going to be having an effect on their career one way or another. There's certain things that are just a, a matter of chance that are going to happen, um, and that doesn't even consider um, team fit. And, you know, I worked in New Orleans for four years. If we drafted players on offense, a lot of times, yeah, Jimmy Graham panned out because Sean Payton, Sean Payton had a plan, and we had Drew Brees who was going to make it work out. We drafted that same player on defense. You know, Patrick Robinson, we didn't have the same level of success. Uh, you with Washington, you probably remember picking on him while he was with the Eagles. 
Um, but um, that's a big part of it. So there's so much uncertainty when it comes to this whole thing in general. This year, yeah, there's a little bit more. We didn't have as many games of a lot of people. We didn't have a lot of the level of competition. Somebody like Zach Wilson from BYU, I get a little bit concerned about because, yeah, it was impressive if he turned on the film this year, but the competition was not the same. BYU did not play the normal schedule that they would have normally played, and we never saw him have the level of success that he had in, 2020, uh, in 2020 in, in the years prior to that, um, where, where he kind of came out of nowhere because he wasn't performing as well. So um, we know less because we have fewer games. It's the same from a statistical perspective. If you only have six games on a player, it's not as good much sample as if you have, you know, 12, 15, whatever you might get to when, when you're in a real ideal circumstance. But like I said, this is football. We don't have ideal sample sizes and stuff like that to begin with. So um, and same thing when you're a scout. Um, you're not going to have the same games to choose from to see uh, Chase Young and how he performs against all of the best tackles in the Big Ten. We don't have that opportunity this year where some of the best offensive, uh, offensive tackles or pass rushers, we only saw them in little samples or even not at all since they were maybe a true sophomore. So just uh, there's more uncertainty as far as all of that goes, but at least we should be more aware of that uncertainty this year. So I think there's, there's, a, there's an opportunity for uh, advantages for smart teams that can understand what's really going on there. All right, so let's get to the draft class. Uh, we as Washington football team fans have spent a whole lot of time talking quarterback this offseason. Do you believe that this 2021 quarterback draft class is as deep as many say it is? Yeah, uh, this is a this is a really strong quarterback class. Uh, this is the third year of the football rookie handbook. It's easy. It's easily the strongest class we've done in the three years. Now, sometimes you look at a class like uh, Eli Manning and Philip Rivers and Ben Roethlisberger ahead of time, and you think it's going to be good, and it is good. Sometimes you don't know exactly that that class is going to have Patrick Mahomes and Deshaun Watson in it um, until you look back and you say, "Hmm, that was a much better class than we realized at the time." So again, I, I'm in favor of uncertainty here, but. Trevor Lawrence is the highest graded uh, quarterback that we've done uh, and really the, the, the top player in, in football rookie handbook history. He would be the number one pick any of the last three years for us. Um, he's fantastic. We know he's going to go number one. Um, but then we have two quarterbacks, Justin Fields and Zach Wilson, who are right there um, with uh, grades that compare favorably to uh, a Kyler Murray, for example. Uh, when we look back over the past couple of years. So uh, we really like these guys. We think that they've got a lot of upside. There is a little bit of a lower floor on Fields and Wilson than there is on Trevor Lawrence, which which accounts for part of the difference. I do see a world where if Zach Wilson comes out and the speed is just totally different than it was at BYU last year, I could see that being a problem. I could see Justin Fields taking time to fit in. Depends on the fit. You know, if he goes number two to uh, San Francisco, um, then I, I, I love what, what the way he fits in. If he um, falls into a system where they're not going to have as great of a usage for him, then I wonder what the path looks like. So both of those guys, high end. And then you get to Trey Lance and Mac Jones, who we have as kind of um, could be could grow into starters. We probably don't like either of those guys in year one. For Trey Lance, it's the inexperience. It's the quality of competition. He's an unbelievable athlete. He's like a running back when you when you see him with the football in his hands, but um, it's going to take it's going to take some uh, molding of the play there in order to get him into what uh, he's going to be. And Mac Jones is basically the exact opposite. When you kind of see what he is, he's a lot of accuracy. He led a lot of our statistics this year on the analytical side, but the athleticism 
is 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 poor, um, and it doesn't take an experienced scout to see him on film and realize that he's going to have to be successful within the pocket. And if you think about that again, go back to from a football standpoint, Justin Herbert outperformed everybody's expectations last year because he didn't have to deal with two two high safeties almost ever because they were worried about him running with the football. So when you can dictate the coverages with your athleticism, it makes that transition easier. So Mac Jones is going to get none of the benefit of that. He great accuracy in the uh, you know the seven on seven offense that they had in Alabama last year, but um, you kind of get different levels of questions about each of these guys as you go from from the top of the class, Lawrence, down to uh, Fields and Wilson, who are right there in that second tier and really have top five grades for us, um, and then Trey Lance and Mac Jones, where um, you got to have the right fit and you got to have the right plan if it's going to be one of those guys. We're talking with Matt Manocherian, the Vice President of Football and Research for Sports Info Solutions, the editor of the Sports Info Solutions Football Rookie Handbook. I know projecting who goes where can be dicey, but Washington has that number 19 overall pick of the big five quarterbacks who you just discussed. Who do you think is likely or at least plausible to drop to 19 or close enough to 19 to where Washington realistically might have a shot at him? You know, if you look at the mocks, um, it's surprising to me where people have Justin Fields going. He would be pretty much a no-brainer, number two pick for me if I was, if I was sitting there this year. Uh, but a lot of mocks have him a little bit lower. I certainly think if he fell into a double-digit sort of range, that would be enticing for me um, if I'm Washington. But um, I don't really see it. I don't see Justin Fields being available there. I don't think Zach Wilson will be available there. Maybe Trey Lance or Mac Jones. Um, and then if you have one of those two guys there, then uh, it, it's mighty interesting. So the Trey Lance thing becomes interesting from a Ron Rivera perspective, right? He's been down the Cam Newton road before. He's had success with that sort of uh, ball control, running style quarterback before. Does he want to bring in Trey Lance and put in something really similar where, um, you know, we saw um, last year Philadelphia had Jalen Hurts had some success with that sort of a run-first quarterback, a, a true dual threat, um, not not being an athletic guy that's really a thrower. If you're going to try that, you can try that with, with Trey Lance. You can start him off as really a running quarterback. And the good news is his upside as a passer is higher than, than Cam Newton's upside as a passer ever was. Now, I'm not saying he's Cam Newton. Cam Newton was absolutely special in tons of ways, and we saw him dominate the highest level of college football before he ever came out. Um, Trey Lance is dominated at his level, but his level is a much lower level, and he's not very experienced right now. So don't expect him to come in, make the progressions. I would be surprised if Rivera played him in any more than, than sort of gadget packages, uh, maybe something special for his skill set early. But that is interesting. Now, again, the total opposite road, Mac Jones. I'm also intrigued by Mac Jones there. I mentioned to you why I have my concerns about Mac Jones. The athleticism, he's one of those guys you gotta say his first and last name, right? You gotta say Mac Jones together. Um, <laughs> his athleticism, it worries me because by being a statue back there, you can't dictate coverages at all. And NFL defenses are so good when they know that you're gonna be stuck back there throwing from the same platform every time and not being able to change those angles. So I, I do worry about that. At the same time, I think he's an obvious update. I, upgrade like he, he probably walks on the field as the week one starter for Washington next year just because we've seen him operate a high level offense before you don't have any concerns about his ability to go through uh, the progressions and if we do trust 
some of our advanced statistics. I know the scout in me still sometimes wants to go back to the eye test and, and really look at things that way. Whether you look at uh, total points on a per game basis, total points, passing total points per game. Um, and I should take a step back. That is our kind of holy grail statistic. Mm-hmm. Total points takes into account. Uh, it's, it's fancy these days. People like to talk about EPA, the expected points added. Yeah. Well, that takes EPA, which is really a team stat, and it splits it out amongst the 22 players on the field. So when we do that, Mac Jones kills our passing metrics and our overall quarterback metrics. So, um, he, he really, uh, intrigues me, you know, the accuracy. 91% of his aimed passes were catchable last year, led the nation. 77% actual completion percentage. Um, the independent quarterback rating, which each of the past couple of years has been a good indicator of who the best quarterbacks are going to be in the NFL, that takes quarterback rating and says, strip out all the drops. If, they, if you had a drop touchdown, you get credit for a touchdown. Dropped interception, you get credit for an interception. So it helps you and it hurts you. Matt Jones just, uh, you know, off the charts in that regard. He's at 145 on the quarterback rating scale where, you know, which goes up to 158.3. Zach Wilson is next best at 138. So, um, if you if you're one to buy into to the advanced statistics, then uh, you got to be intrigued with him at that point in the draft. I love that. I mean, that's exactly the kind of stuff I feel like football has been starving for for years. Advanced data, you know, a more sophisticated way of trying to isolate individual performance. One quarterback we haven't yet mentioned. He's come up at least somewhat here in D.C. The Florida quarterback, Kyle Trask. What's your take on him? Yep, he's uh he's the next guy on our list. So he's he is the number six ranked quarterback, uh, tied with Davis Mills. Um, you know, even ahead of some some other guys that maybe are getting a little bit more love in other places. Um, Kyle Trask is really interesting because if you just went back to the old basic stats, he led the the uh, FBS in yards per game and touchdowns per game, stuff like that. The really tricky thing about his evaluation is when he had to play without Kyle Pitts and Kadarius Tony. It was a totally different offense. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have one article this year where we evaluated all of the most interesting on-off splits for different players in college football because we, we have every play that you're on and off the field for is one of the things that we record. And when you look at Kyle Trask's performance with both Tony um, and uh, Pitts on the field or with just one of them on the field and then with neither of them on the field, he goes from a quarterback that you'd love to have in the first round to uh, maybe, okay, I could see it with this guy to, oh, gosh, I got my concerns now. So um, it's never fair to, I think, compare players to, to people that, that have come out and we've already seen kind of how they've turned out. Just because he reminds me of him as a player doesn't mean it's the same way. But if you remember Will Greer coming out of West Virginia yeah. a couple years ago, he does feel a little bit similar to, to Will Greer for me. He's got the arm strength where he can do this, um, but there are enough questions about the processing and when things aren't clean, how well he can get it done that, um, you know, he's, he's a step behind of those first five guys that we talked about. It's interesting you bring up Will Greer because Washington has hired Marty Herney for its front office, and it was Marty Herney who drafted Will Greer for the Carolina Panthers there a few years back. In terms of a quarterback who isn't projected to go, say, in the first round, but maybe could be a later round steal, is there kind of a dark horse, someone who you feel like, you know, yeah, has flaws, but potentially could end up blossoming and be a diamond in the rough out of this draft? in terms of the quarterback position? Uh, you know, that's a really good question. I don't I don't know if I have uh, – there's not a guy that comes to mind as like, yeah, I love him uh, and he could be that guy for me this year. Okay. Um, 
Davis Mills, you know, I, I mentioned he, he's our he's our seventh ranked guy. I don't think he's going to go very high in the draft. We're a little bit higher on him relative to some other people. Uh, he's a quarterback out of Stanford, um, a guy that um, again has the accuracy, um, will spread the ball around the, the short part of the field. Um, not as good going down the field. We haven't seen the real demonstrated um, going through the decision making progressions on the level that that we would like to quite yet, but. The natural arm talent, I think, is there, um, and if he can straighten out kind of turnovers, things like that, some of the some of the mistake prone parts of his game, and then we can see him do things, you know, against a, a higher quality of competition. I think he's an interesting player to keep keep an eye on. Um, like I said, not somebody that that I love. Um, there's there's really not a guy like that this year for me um, after those top quarterbacks. But um, he'd be he'd be one guy that I would say to keep an eye on. Okay. Beyond quarterback, where to you is a twenty twenty one draft strong in terms of positions? Ooh, that's a good question. Twenty twenty one. Well, receiver is where you got to start. Receiver is absolutely ridiculous this year. Um, Devontae Smith had one of the best college football seasons in, in history, and he's our third ranked receiver. Uh, we got his teammate Jalen Waddle above him. We've got Jamar Chase above him. Um, and then the position's deep too. I mean, when you start talking about, I, I mentioned Kadarius Tony, or Rashad Batemans, Elijah, Elijah Moore, Rondell Moore, there, there's guys there. Uh, running back, I know running backs don't matter is, is a popular thing, but the top of the running back class, really, really strong this year. Everybody knows about Najee Harris. Keep an eye out for the two North Carolina running backs. Javante Williams, absolutely love him. He's one of the rare running backs that comes into the NFL and can pass block. And he can pass block right away, so he'll play on all three downs. And he's an absolute bowling ball in the way that he breaks tackles. Michael Carter, his teammate, also really interesting. And, again, I haven't even mentioned Travis Etienne yet. So I look at those positions. Um, you see different talent when you look around uh, the offensive line, uh, the defensive line. There's kind of some some top 100 depth. I think the top 100 area of the depth of the class, those two positions, is good. But maybe not, not a lot of guys that really – jump out at you um, outside of Panay Sewell on the offensive line. There aren't really those kind of guys where you're like, okay, that's a Chase Young blue chipper. Um, and then you look in the secondary, uh, again, Patrick Sertan, um, if you watch his father play, uh, it, it'll probably bias you towards him. Yeah. Because um, just, you know, one of the one of the lockdown corners, uh, they can play man-to-man, can play zone, can play two-man, straight cover two, whatever you want. Uh, Patrick Sertan Jr. is a really similar player to that. He's, uh, his father was underdrafted because he didn't have elite physical attributes. He's not going to get underdrafted because he doesn't have elite physical attributes, but that is true. He's not that classic burner 4-3 guy, um, but it doesn't matter when you watch him play on the film. He's been a lockdown corner for three years for Alabama for a reason, um, and he's a special player there too. So the way I look at kind of the depth of this draft draft is um, I'm not sure that there are particular positions where, where it's especially weak. Um, it's pretty, it's pretty well rounded when you go through the top 100. But then once you get past the top 100, it probably falls off a little bit quicker than we're, than we're, uh, normally, um, expecting. And a reason for that is that a lot of players were able to kind of opt out of the draft and go back in for another school year of school this year. So the whole, the whole, uh, makeup of the draft is just a little bit of a different sample than we would normally get sort of a, an unadjusted year. So that's something to, to look out for. Matt Manocharian, Vice President of Football and Research for Sports Info Solutions, editor of the Sports Info Solutions 
football rookie handbook, breaking it down scientifically for us here. Before I let you go, I, I do want to get your takes on some general draft and team building principles. Generally speaking, are you a best player available guy or should team need factor in at least somewhat? There's, there's no question in the world that I'm, I'm all the way on the best player available side of this. Uh, now there is a continuum. Um, if you have Drew Brees and you somehow get a, a top pick, you probably aren't thinking about taking a quarterback in the top five. So I would be lying if I said that you completely rule it out, but I'm about as far as you go down that side of the continuum as, as, as can be. And the reason for it's pretty simple. Um, when I've been in the draft room and I've had that experience, it's very hard to find consensus on players. So if your scouts, and that's your area scouts, your cross-check scouts, your over-the-top scouts, they do their work. Then you get your analytics department, and you cross-check the different numbers and see if they corroborate what your scouts found. Then you bring your coaches into the process, and you have you guys make sure, hey, I can coach this guy. He's somebody I want to work with. You get your trainers sign off on people medically, and then the head coach and the offensive, defensive coordinator, GM finally – all, all, everybody's in alignment on this player. There's not a lot of room to worry about positional need, right? If you start weighing positional need before the uh, the fit of the player and the consensus of the building, the vision for who he's going to I talked about Jimmy Graham and the vision for who he was going to be. It always worked out when he was offensive players in New Orleans. That's so much more important than positional need. Positional need is only as good as your next injury anyway. Um, so... I'm, I'm really uh, completely in favor of there are enough obstacles in team building where you don't you're really uh, handicapping yourself if you're going to worry about team need ahead of other things. The contrary, you know, the kind of the flip that all on its head. When I've seen teams make mistakes, whenever it's been whether I was in Cleveland and I watched us pick Justin Gilbert ahead of Johnny Manziel in the worst draft and the worst draft process I've ever been a part of. Um, wow. those decisions were made because we were trying to get players that we wanted to fit a certain role instead of trusting what the scouts saw, trusting the process, trusting the evaluation, trusting positional value. All of that stuff needs to be considered. If you're, if you're worried about, uh, positional fits and, and, you know, a veteran that you're going to take off or something like that, uh, I really think you're just, you're making it really hard on yourself. One more for you. So, of course, there's been a lot of talk this offseason about the Deshaun Watson situation and what it might take to trade for him. We've certainly had the conversation a bunch here in D.C., and that's led to a lot of roster construction conversations about trading a ton of draft capital for one guy, even a franchise quarterback. I'm just curious with you, what is your philosophy on trading a boatload of draft picks for one player? You know, the value of, say, three ones and two twos for a stud quarterback. Is it worth it? Do you say, no, you can always do so much more with all those picks? How do you view that? You know, in general, um, this is where I'll put on, I'll, I'll, I'll sign, I'll sign the, the form and I'll say, okay, I'm an analytics guy. I like trading down better than I like trading up. I told you, I believe that people underestimate uncertainty. And I just mentioned that you're always just an injury away. So putting all your eggs into a one player basket, it's not a good way to operate. So I, I really firmly agree that trade down when possible, accumulate assets, take the long view. One player is not the way, but quarterbacks are different. And that sucker, Deshaun Watson, is different. <laughs> You're not talking about, if you say a top five quarterback in the league, if you say a top five quarterback in the league, you're already talking about a top five player in the league, right? Yeah. Like, like 
You don't see you don't see MVPs at other positions. There's a reason for that. Deshaun Watson's a top five player in the league. I think I'm I'm probably willing to make the argument that if he gets traded, he'll be the most valuable asset that's ever been traded in the NFL. I know people thought it was Herschel Walker back in the day, but they ended up being wrong about that. This isn't Herschel Walker. This is this is the breadwinner. This is that guy. So um, when you talk about three ones and two twos, yeah, I'm I'm there. I think he's that important a player. He's that valuable. Um, I've heard people also ask the question: Would you rather have Trevor Lawrence on the rookie uh, wage scale, all the team team building benefits that come with having that cost control quarterback, or Deshaun Watson at forty million dollars a year like he's going to be? I said I, I'm still signing up for Deshaun Watson. Wow! I don't know what Trevor Lawrence is going to develop into. I got a pretty good idea. And I, and I think it's going to be really good. And you're talking about the younger player, the cost-controlled years, all that kind of stuff. Deshaun Watson is just that special. Um, he actually led it in the NFL in total points this year, if you'll believe that, hmm. on, on a team that was was absolutely miserable. Now, part of that was um, just volume because of the, the amount of the offense that he had to shoulder. Um, but he was, in terms of performance by our metrics, right there with Aaron Rodgers and Patrick Mahomes this year in terms of his performance on the field. So, yeah, for that player... I would trade all those assets. Excellent. Matt, I love talking football with you. I love the way you approach the game. Best of luck with the book, the Sports Info Solutions Football Rookie Handbook, and all the best to you and the rest of the crew at Sports Info Solutions. You guys really do a spectacular job. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. I'd love to come back anytime. We move now to College Hoops Conference Tournament Week. And to whatever extent there remain doubt about Maryland making the NCAA tournament, that doubt has now been extinguished. The eight-seeded Terrapins, a 68-57 win over nine-seeded Michigan State at Lucas Oil Stadium in Indianapolis in the second round of the Big Ten Tournament on Thursday. The Terps' first win in a Big Ten Tournament game since 2016. Now... Uh, there was no true Big Ten tournament in 2020. Uh, you played just two first-round games in that Big Ten tournament due, of course, to the COVID-19 pandemic. But Maryland had not won a Big Ten tournament game since 2016. So even if you put 2020 aside, it still had been a while, a long while, since Maryland had won a game in the Big Ten tournament. Terps had gone 2-5 and five in Big Ten tournament games 2015 through 2019. You get that monkey off the back with this 11-point win over Old Sparty. On Thursday, Terps allowed Michigan State to begin the game on a 23-11 run, but then closed the first half on a 23-7 run. Terps then held Michigan State without a point over the first 6 minutes, 17 seconds of the second half, during which the Terps never trailed and mostly led by double digits. And how about this turnaround in the game? The Terps in going from that 23-11 first half deficit to what was their peak lead of 19 at 59-40 in the second half went on a 48 48- 17 run. It was not a great start for Maryland, but the rest of the game went quite well. And, you know, this was not unexpected. Maryland did a really good job in its other game against Michigan State, you know, just a few weeks ago, that Sunday afternoon game, February 28th. Terps uh, shredding Michigan State 73-55 in that game. And that was a Michigan State team that had won three consecutive games, including two wins over top five teams the previous week, 81-72 over then number 5, Illinois, on February 23rd, 71-67 over then number 4, Ohio State, 
on February 25th. Terps dominated that game against Michigan State in late February. Never trailed, began the game on an 11-0 run, never looked back. So this has been a good matchup for Maryland this season. And just as was the case in that initial game against Michigan State this year, Maryland's defense outstanding on Thursday. Terps held Michigan State to 4-16 on threes for the game. Like I said, held Michigan State without a point over the first six minutes, 17 seconds of the second half. Held Michigan State in the second half to just 11 of 29 shooting. And the Terps for the game, eight steals generated 18 Michigan State turnovers. The Terps finished with 27 points off turnovers to Michigan State's two. So yes, you may breathe a sigh of relief if you're like me and a Maryland fan. And yes, you know, any notion of up, one and done, they're dead and buried, and the Turge has lost the team or anything like that. No, this has been a very peculiar Maryland team this year. At times, it's looked bad. At times, it's looked great. You know, it's not a team that overwhelms you with talent, that's to be sure, and I think that is a legit criticism of Mark Turgeon. The roster construction for this team has left a lot to be desired in terms of lacking size, but as the season has gone on, Turgeon has gotten this team to be better, and Turgeon certainly has gotten this team to play really good defense, and you saw that really good defense on display on Thursday. Now, the big bugaboo for Maryland, and this has been the case for years for the Terps under Turds, the offense. Uh, Terps are not a great offensive team. They're certainly not a very consistent offensive team. Maryland beat Michigan State on Thursday despite shooting just 38.2% from the field, including just 6 to 20 on threes, and also being bad again on free throws. It's been a real problem for Maryland this year. Terps go just 20 of 28 on free throws on Thursday. Eric Ayala just one for seven on threes, but he did shoot 10 of 11 on free throws, finished with 21 points, nine rebounds, four assists, four turnovers, and two steals. Aaron Wiggins 0 for three on threes, but six of eight on twos, seven and nine on free throws, 19 points, six rebounds, three steals, and two blocks. Look, it's all about the NCAA tournament with Maryland. So, you know, the idea that like this fixes everything and this ensures that Mark Turgeon is back as head coach next season Nothing is for sure until you see what transpires in the NCAA tournament. But what is now for sure, for sure, and I think it was already for sure, but now we can add that second for sure, it's for sure, for sure, is that Maryland is going to the NCAA tournament. And any notion that, okay, you lost two straight to conclude the regular season, you're one and done at the Big Ten tournament, maybe now you're a bubble team, that kind of a thing. No, you're not in a bubble. Maryland's going to the NCAA tournament. And uh, let's see what happens on Friday because this is going to be a very difficult quarterfinal matchup for Maryland in the Big Ten tournament. One-seeded Michigan in another game here for the Terps that's going to get going in the morning, an 11.30 a.m. tip for the Terps and the Wolverines. And whereas Maryland-Michigan State has been a good matchup for Maryland this season, Maryland-Michigan has been a very bad matchup for Maryland this season. Two games against Michigan, both losses. The first one came on New Year's Eve, an 84-73 loss to Michigan at Xfinity Center. The Terps in the second half led by four, then allowed Michigan to go on a 34-11 run. The Terps got demolished inside in that game, outscored in the paint 42-22. No answer for the 7-1 freshman Hunter Dickinson, who went to DeMatha. No answer for Franz Wagner, the brother of the Wizards, Mo Wagner. The more recent game against Michigan was another Maryland loss, and it was an even uglier loss. 87-63 at Michigan on January 19th. Terps never led in that game, allowed Michigan to begin the game on a 17-3 run. Terps in the second half never trailed by fewer than 17 points. And what was odd about that game is that Terps actually did a pretty good job defending Dickinson. The problem was defending other guys for Michigan in that game. Mike Smith, Isaiah Livers, who it feels like has been at Michigan forever, and Franz Wagner, when it combined eight for 11 on threes 
in that game. So Michigan has been a tough matchup. I am not overly optimistic about this game on Friday, but again, it really is truly about the NCAA tournament, of which the Terrapins will be a part. Well, making the NCAA tournament is still a tall task for Georgetown, but the Hoyas a step closer with a glorious victory on Thursday afternoon. Eight-seeded Georgetown, a 72-71 win over one-seeded Villanova at Madison Square Garden in the quarters of the Big East tournament. The Hoyas, who had been 0-3 in Big East tournament games with Patrick Ewing as head coach, now 2-3 and in Big East tournament games with Patrick as head coach. We talked about this with Patrick Stevens, bracketologist for the Washington Post on the podcast on Wednesday. Georgetown probably needs to win the Big East tournament to make the NCAA tournament. You're just two steps away from that now. Now, before we go any further, we got to play for you what Patrick Ewing said during his post-game press conference on Thursday. So, of course, Big East tournament at Madison Square Garden, home of the New York Knicks, the franchise for which Patrick Ewing was an all-time great. Patrick Ewing apparently got accosted, got harassed, got told, where are your credentials? Where is your badge? Where is your coach's pass to get into the arena? And take a listen to the anger in the voice of Patrick, even after this great win on Thursday. This was great. They, I thought this was my building, and I feel terrible that I'm getting stopped, accosted, asking for passes. Everybody in this building should know who the hell I am. And I'm getting stopped. I can't move around this building. Like I, I was like, what the hell? Is this Madison Square Garden? I'm going to have to call Mr. Dolan and say, geez, is my number in the rafters or what? That was awesome. Could you not hear, by the way, in Patrick's voice, the voice of the legendary John Thompson? Could you not hear some of JT in Patrick's voice there? Just to, kind of the tone, the rhythm, the way Patrick was saying what he was saying. Like that to me, that is so Coach Thompson influenced, that postgame rant there by Patrick. And good for him. What are you doing? Holding up harassing, accosting the great Patrick Ewing. But anyway, Hoyas come through with the win. Something, by the way, that if you are a regular listener to this podcast, you're not surprised by. I talked about this on Thursday's podcast. This Georgetown-Villanova game was a very winnable game for the Hoyas. First of all, Villanova was without maybe its best player, senior point guard Colin Gillespie, who suffered a season-ending torn left MCL on March 3rd. One of the other key Villanova players, Justin Moore, went to DeMatha, who's dealing with a severe ankle sprain. Now, he did play on Thursday and actually did all right. 27 minutes off the bench, two of five on threes. But two key guys dealing with injury, one guy not even playing at all. And in the two previous Georgetown-Villanova games this season, the Hoyas actually were in those games, ended up losing both games. But to go back to the initial meeting, what was a 76-63 Georgetown loss to Villanova at McDonough Arena, Hoyas led by 18 at one point in the first half, led at the half by 13, then got destroyed in the second half, 43-17. And then in the second game, the 84-74 loss at Villanova on February 7th, Hoyas led deep into the second half of that game at 67-66, then got to outscore the rest of that game, 18-7. It was on Thursday that Georgetown overcame the deficit. The Hoyas overcame an 11-point second-half deficit at 61-50, outscored Villanova the rest of the game 22-10. And here, to me, was the key to the game. Like, there are all kinds of things you can look at with any given game, but bottom line, Georgetown on Thursday, 23 for 23 on free throws. Villanova, 14 for 22 on free throws. That's it. Like, that right there is the game. You're one by one. You were a perfect 23 for 23 from the line. Villanova, a mere 14 of 22 from the line. 
Uh, otherwise, I mean, this was a very mixed performance for Georgetown. Did hold Villanova to three and 19 on threes in the first half, but Nova six for 11 on threes in the second half. Uh, Georgetown was all right from beyond the arc, nine to 22, but went just 11 of 29 on twos. Some heroes for the Hoyas. Dante Harris. How about his performance? 18 points, 16 of which came in the second half, including draining two free throws with 4.7 seconds left to take the Hoyas from trailing at 71-70 to leading at 72-71. Harris for the game, 6 of 11 shooting, 5 assists, no turnovers. How about that from the freshman point guard? Tremendous performance by him. Uh, the big man, the 6'11 Nigerian, Kudus Wahab for a second straight day, was very good. 17 points on 5 of 8 shooting and six rebounds in just 28 minutes of playing time as a starter. He did with foul trouble, actually ended up fouling out. But Wahab was good, had a huge and one dunk that ultimately took the Hoyas from trailing at 70-67 to being tied at 70 with 40.1 seconds left in the second half. Wahab was big in that Georgetown win over Marquette in the first round of the tournament on Wednesday afternoon. 19.6 of eight shooting, seven boards in just 25 minutes in that game. Javon Blair for the Hoyas continues to come off the bench, and he was good again. Four and nine on threes. 14 points on Thursday. Big three from well beyond the top of the arc for a 63-62 Hoyas lead with 5.06 left in the second half. Blair in that win over Marquette on Wednesday afternoon. Two of five on threes. Finished with 20 points off the bench. And Jamarco Pickett on Thursday. 0 of six on twos, four turnovers, but also two of three on threes, 12 points and eight rebounds. The Hoyas won. The Hoyas survived. The Hoyas advanced. They will face five-seeded Seton Hall at MSG in the Big East Tournament Semis Friday evening at 6. Uh, Seton Hall, a 77-69 overtime win over four-seeded St. John's in the Big East Tournament quarters. Still an uphill climb, but Georgetown continues to have a pulse. I tell you, it's been such an up-and-down year for the Hoyas. At times, they're like they're dead and buried. They got no shot. Maybe Patrick Ewing isn't even back. You know, I thought he might have been coaching for his job in that game against Marquette on Wednesday. Now, here you are just a couple of days later. First two Big East tournament wins for the Hoyas under Patrick and a chance to continue what would be a miracle run in a conference tournament to make the NCAA tournament. As our friend, the legendary Rich Votkin is saying, Hoyas win! 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 Yes, they did win. So Maryland wins on Thursday. Georgetown wins on Thursday. And Wahoo victorious on Thursday as well. One-seeded Virginia, a 72-69 win over eight-seeded Syracuse at the Greensboro Coliseum in the quarters of the ACC tournament on Thursday afternoon. It was not easy. The 6'3 freshman, Reese Beekman, having to hit a game-winning three at the buzzer. Uh, what a play this was. Wide open was Beekman. Great feed by the point guard for Virginia, Kihei Clark, from the left elbow to find Beekman. Beekman, to his credit, converts, and Virginia escapes with the win. And you have to say escapes. The Cavaliers blew a 67-61 lead with less than two minutes left in the second half. This is a good Virginia team, but this is a Virginia team that is not great. And especially the thing that has been the thing for the Cavaliers in the Tony Bennett era defense, that's not what we're used to seeing. This is not an elite defensive team for Virginia this year. It's a pretty good defensive team, but we're used to elite defense from the Wahoos. And we're not getting that this season. And you had another instance of that on Thursday. The Cavs allowed Buddy Beheim, yes, the son of Syracuse head coach Jim Beheim, to go five for eight on three, score 31 points in 39 minutes as a starter. How many times since Tony Bennett became Virginia head coach has anybody 
scored 30 or more points in a game against Virginia. And yet it happened in this game against the Cuse on Thursday afternoon. So you gave a lot of stuff up to Buddy Beheim. Uh, your two best scorers, Sam Hauser and Trey Murphy the third, a combined six for 21 on threes. So that was a problem. But Virginia found a way to get the job done. Good game for Jay Huff, the big man, 13 points, four or five shooting, 12 rebounds, including six offensive boards and four blocks. Uh, Virginia to face four-seeded Georgia Tech at the Greensboro Coliseum in the ACC Tournament Semis Friday evening at 6.30. Georgia Tech defeating 13-seeded Miami, 70-66 in the quarters. But yeah, I mean, this is the thing that worries you about Virginia. It's actually a pretty good Virginia team offensively, but defensively, like I said, it's not that it's bad, but this is not elite. This is not the elite-level Cavaliers defense we've grown accustomed to seeing. You know, you saw some of this during that recent three-game losing streak for the Cavaliers. 81-60 loss at Florida State on February 15th. Cavs in that game allowed the Seminoles to shoot 50% from the field, including 13-24 on three. 66-65 loss at Duke on February 20th. Cavs allowed the Blue Devils to shoot 51% from the field in that game. As mentioned, Buddy Beheim going nuclear against Virginia on Thursday afternoon. Just not what we're used to seeing for Virginia under Tony Bennett. But the Cavaliers did win. Reese Beekman, the hero, and Wahoo a chance to advance to another ACC tournament final with this game Friday evening against Georgia Tech. So the Cavaliers victorious on Thursday in the ACC tournament. The Hokies, though, were not. Three-seeded Virginia Tech losing to six-seeded North Carolina, 81-73 at the Greensboro Coliseum in the quarters of the ACC tournament on Thursday night. With Virginia Tech, it's very hard right now to know what you should think because the Hokies have just barely been playing. Uh, this game on Thursday night was the Hokies' first game since February 27th, just Tech's third game since February 6th. Few teams have had it as hard as Virginia Tech has had it this season in terms of COVID-19 and just having a bunch of games postponed slash canceled. So you barely have seen Tech play over the last month or so here. So I don't know if they're, the Hokies were just like rusty or what the case was. I mean, North Carolina is not an easy out. Game was tied in the second half at 49. Hokies then allowed UNC to go on a 31-19 run. You know, this was a Carolina team that won its second round game 101-59 over 11-seeded Notre Dame on Wednesday night. So Carolina can go, and Tech, just like I said, has barely been playing over these last few weeks. Virginia Tech finished with just six fast break points to Carolina's 20. The Hokies had just seven offensive rebounds to Carolina's 15, and in the second half got outscored in terms of second chance points. 15-8, and the Hokies had no answer for the Carolina 6'10 sophomore Armando Baycott. He had 13 rebounds, including six offensive boards, to go with 17 points on 7-9 shooting and four blocks. Uh, for Tech, Justin Mutz, three of five on threes, but just one of five on free throws. That was a problem for Tech in this game, just nine of 16 on free throws. Mutz, though, did finish with 24 points and eight rebounds. Uh, Tech's best player, Keve Aluma, didn't shoot the ball well, 4-13, including 0-3 on threes. Did do some other things, nine points, eight rebounds, four assists, one turnover, two steals, but it was not the best that we've seen from Aluma. Wabisa Beatty, the Tech point guard, 0-5 shooting, uh, did, though, have seven assists, Versus one turnover, Naheem Aleen, four six on threes for Tech. So it's not like Tech was awful in this game or anything like that, but, you know, not playing a lot, I think, harms you this time of year. And I thought you saw some of that uh, in this loss to the Carolina Heels. The Hokies, in terms of the resume, good overall record, you know, like I said, three seed in the ACC tournament. But the analytics have not been kind to Tech this year. Tech has been hovering in that, you know, range of the 40s, 50s, 
and KenPom.com. And now that Tech is one and done in the ACC tournament, you know, you're, you're pretty clearly looking at a six seed, a seven seed, maybe an eight seed in the NCAA tournament. We know Tech's going to that. Uh, but it's been an odd season. It's been an odd month for sure. And the Hokies end up being ousted in the quarters of the ACC tournament. All right, let's talk some Capitals. Another win for the Caps on Thursday night. They improved to 16-6-4, victory at the Philadelphia Flyers. Caps now 3-0-0 without Tom Wilson during a seven-game suspension. And the Caps winning at the Flyers on Thursday night, despite being without center Lars Eller. Tiger, uh, he was not with the team due to a family matter. And so the Caps actually played this game with 11 as opposed to 12 forwards and 7 as opposed to six defensemen. And real quick on that, and I got a kick out of this. So the seventh defenseman ended up being Jonas Siegenthaler, a guy who was like been on a milk carton for this season. Jonas Siegenthaler was re-signed by the Caps this past October as a restricted free agent. Jonas Siegenthaler is a young player. At times he's been talked up as being, you know, a really promising player for the Caps. Jonas Siegenthaler plays on Thursday night for the first time since February 4th. Okay, so the guy plays for the first time in more than a month and he plays... (laughs) for just 28 seconds. That's it. Finally, old Siggy, as he's known, gets active, is set to be out there, and the poor guy is out there for just 28 seconds uh, for the game. Such is life these days if you're Jonas Siegenthaler. Um, this was an odd game again for the Caps. You know, they had that win over the New Jersey Devils on Tuesday night, a 5-4 overtime victory, a game that the Caps were very lucky to win. They blew a 3-0 second period lead blew a 4-1 third period lead. The Caps in the third period got demolished in the puck possession battle. Well, the Caps on Thursday night got smashed in the puck possession battle. Again, the Caps for natural stat trick had just 24 5-on-5 shot attempts to the Flyers 40, had just one high danger 5-on-5 shot attempt to the Flyers 4. And if you just look at shots on goal, the Caps for the game, 22 shots on goal to the Flyers 33, including just seven shots on goal to the Flyers 14 in a third period in which the Flyers cut the Caps lead from 4-1 to 4-3. Yeah, things got dicey in that third period on Thursday night. You were up 4-1, that lead became 4-3, and then you got an empty netter from Nick Dowd to ice the victory. Ilya Samsonov was the Caps' starting goaltender for the third time in six games, stopped 30 of 33 shots. He wasn't bad. He wasn't great, though, especially in that third period, per natural stat trick in the game, Samsonov giving up a goal on a high danger shot, a medium danger shot, and a low danger shot. Alex Ovechkin had a goal on Thursday night. Even strength goal, 837 into the first period to give the Caps a one nothing lead. Blasted a wicked slap shot from the top of the right circle off a field clear. Goal number 715 in the regular season career for Alex Ovechkin. So he's now within two with Phil Esposito for number six in NHL history. And this was another very good performance by Ovechkin. I've been preaching this. He's not necessarily racking up the goals, but Ovi is active game in, game out. Thursday night, not just the goal, but a game high seven shots on goal, a game high 11 shot attempts finished with a plus minus rating of plus two. You go back to what Ovi did in that game on Tuesday night, the overtime win over the Devils. Ovi pointless, but a game high nine shot attempts, five of which were blocked. It was number four on the caps in that game per natural stat trick. Uh, in five-on-five shot attempt percentage. So Obi's been good lately here. Don't get seduced by, well, the goal total isn't necessarily what it should be. Um, You know, first of all, it's not a terrible goal total, but Obi game in and game out is racking up shots, racking up shot attempts, and that's what you want to see. The goals will ultimately come. Uh, I thought a very good game on Thursday night for the Caps' fourth line. Carl Haglin, Nick Dowd, and Garnett Hathaway. Those three players per natural stat trick with the Caps' top three players in the game 
in terms of five on five shot attempt percentages. Dowd had two goals, a second period even strength goal, and that third period empty net goal that, by the way, came from 185 feet away from the Flyers net. But that first goal by Dowd, the even strength tally in the second period, really a, a, a thing of both beauty and luck. The goal gave the Caps the 4-1 lead. So Dowd, while driving toward the net, skillfully maneuvered the puck through one of the Flyers defensemen, Travis Sanheim, in the left circle, but then scored thanks to the puck going off the right skate of another defenseman, Shane Gostisbehar, in the crease. So you engineer the great display of skill in the left circle and driving to the net, and then you get the puck luck at the net with the puck going off the right skate of Shane Gostisbehar. So that's hockey in a nutshell. Beauty and just plain luck. You know, just stupid luck sometimes is what leads to goals in hockey, and that was the case there for Dow. But of course, it was the skill that made that luck possible. So Dowd was good on Thursday night. Hathaway had the secondary assist on that Dowd even strength goal uh, in the second period. Uh, also Hathaway with four hits and he got into a fight in the second period. So good game from what I think has been a good fourth line for the Caps so far this year. It's been like the one line that Peter Laviolette has not played around with. Haglin, Dowd, Hathaway, game in, game out. That's been your fourth line on the Caps. And also for the Caps, John Carlson, second period even strength goal Given the Caps a 3-1 lead, scored on the rush from the left circle off a great pass by Jacob Vrana from below the right circle through the slot. Carlson, that is his 500th career regular season point. He is the first defenseman in Caps history to get to 500 career regular season points. Also had five shots on goal, did Carlson on Thursday night. So the Caps now at 36 points, second in the East Division, still two points behind the New York Islanders because the Islanders won again on Thursday night. A seventh consecutive victory, 5-3 over the New Jersey Devils. Caps are back at the Flyers Saturday night at 7. And we'll wrap up this Friday installment of the Al Goldie podcast, Talking Baseball. And for the Nationals on Thursday afternoon, another encouraging outing from a starting pitcher that's been kind of a theme here over the last week or so. Patrick Corbin, his second Grapefruit League outing, uh, of spring training here. Three scoreless innings, three strikeouts versus two hits and two walks in a one-all tie with the Miami Marlins on Thursday afternoon. And here's a real takeaway with his outing from Corbin beyond just, you know, the ultimate result, three scoreless innings. Fastball velocity was encouraging. So it was Patrick Corbin who pitched the final Grapefruit League game for the Nats in March 2020, right as everything was being shut down due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And one of the things from that outing was that his fastball velocity was only in like the upper 80s, you know, like 87, 88 miles per hour, that kind of a thing. And yes, that was in March and the season didn't end up actually happening until multiple months later. But Patrick Corbett ended up having a very bad 2021 and the fastball velocity was a concern. It is spring training. The radar guns at the spring training ballparks can be very fluky and you can't always just take them as gospel. But the fastball velocity for Corbin on Thursday afternoon averaged around 90, topped out at 92. That's significantly better than what we were seeing from Corbin deep into his 2020 Grapefruit League season. Now, we'll see whether Corbin velocity ends up being, say, you know, a couple of weeks from now. But for now, you seem to be trending in the right direction when it comes to that. We've talked about Patrick Corbin. That's need him to be better in 2021. He's going into his age 31 season. He's coming off a season in which he had an ERA of 466 over 11 starts, gave up a major league worst 85 hits, saw a strikeout rate dip down from 10.8 over the previous two years to 8.2. And going back to this issue of velo, velocity, Patrick Corbin's average four-seam fastball velocity for Sports Info Solutions in 2021, a career worst 90.8 off having been at 92.2 
in 2019. You know, your average forcing fastball velocity dipping down by about a mile and a half per hour. That's significant. You don't like to see something like that. Because for most guys, when the velo goes bye-bye, the success goes bye-bye. And sure enough, Patrick Corbin's velocity going down in 2020 and his performance went down in 2020. So got to be better with that. It looks like he is trending better with that. And that's good news. For the Orioles on Thursday afternoon, it was Felix Hernandez, King Felix making his second start of this Grapefruit League season. Felix Hernandez, one of multiple veteran pitchers brought in by the O's here to try to make the ball club out of spring training. Remember, with the Orioles, you basically have three guys who were set to be a part of the 2021 rotation, John Means, Keegan Aiken, and Dean Kramer. So you need two other guys to fill out your rotation to whatever extent you're going to go with a five-man rotation. Remember, the Orioles, they've gone all in on analytics. So you could see a lot in the way of bullpen starts, tandem starts, openers, etc. All kinds of things the O's can do and I think should do. Uh, you should be creative. You should embrace these new age strategies. I-, I love the direction the O's have gone in with Mike Elias with analytics. But anyway, if you're going to round out your rotation, one of the candidates uh, to be a part of the rotation is Felix Hernandez. And Felix Hernandez got rocked on Thursday afternoon, gives up four runs, three earned in two and two-thirds innings in a 7-5 loss to the Pittsburgh Pirates. Uh, he had just one strikeout versus five hits, including a homer and a double, no walks, a hit by pitch, and a wild pitch. And this is off what we saw from Felix in his initial Grapefruit League outing this spring training season. Two runs in two innings with a fastball velocity mostly in just the mid-80s. Uh, this past Saturday night, a 6-5 loss to the Detroit Tigers. I know he's King Felix, okay? I know he's got this Hall of Fame caliber resume, or at least he's got a a resume that can make you make a Hall of Fame case for him. You know, I don't know that he ends up getting in, but at least there can be a conversation about it. But Felix Hernandez has been a shell of himself for many years now. His last three seasons with the Seattle Mariners, 2017 through 2019, the guy had an ERA of 542. Uh, He did not pitch in 2020. Hernandez actually signed with the Atlanta Braves, but opted out of the season due to the pandemic. He's going into his age 35 season, like the King Felix of 2013, 2014, 2015. That's a distant memory at this point. You're dealing with a guy here now who has really fallen off. Doesn't mean that he can't figure some things out. You know, he's a smart guy. He's been a very successful guy, but so far, not so good for Felix in trying to make this 2021 Orioles rotation. All right, that will do it for you and me on this Friday. You got something to say? You got something to comment on? You got something to complain about? Let me have it. Let me know. Uh, you can reach me on Twitter at Al Galdi. You can always email me the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Lots of exciting things are happening with this podcast. I don't like to say things until they are certain, but we have some exciting things that are going to be happening over the next few weeks here. So stay tuned as the saying goes. And make sure you check out the Scott Allen article uh, on myself and the venturing into the world of podcasting on the Washington Post. Scott Allen did a really good job uh, with that piece. Next week is a huge week. NFL free agency, Washington football team. Cannot wait to get into all of that with you. Have a great weekend. I'll talk to you on Monday. I I thought this was my building. And I feel terrible that I'm getting stopped, accosted, asking for passes. Everybody in this building should know who the hell I am. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. 
From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.